1: Well, first of all, I don't think it's the responsibility of anybody to dictate what the program of elderhood at its concrete lived level should look like. That translation is the responsibility of people who are coming to that time in their lives. Yeah. It's very challenging for anybody at my age to look to people half or a quarter or a third my age and say, well, just do what I do. Just follow me around for a while and you'll get it.
0: I'm Sarah Wilson, and this is Wild, a show where we talk with the biggest minds in the world about the ideas that can help us love and save our one wild and precious life together on this planet. In today's episode, we are going to talk death. We are a generation and a culture that does death badly we know this. It exists as this nebulous, fuzzy kind of non thing out there that we pretend isn't really there. It's the elephant at the finish line. We are so fearful of it, we even shudder at the idea of making peace with it, of having to relax into it. And instead, we distract ourselves with longevity theories and all kinds of anti-aging tricks. We just don't want it there, and yet There it is, as certain as taxes in this lifetime. Now, my guest today, however, goes there fully. Stephen Jenkinson is a Harvard-trained theologian. He's an activist. He's a farmer and an elder, and he spent 20 years working in what he calls the death trade, counselling more than 1,500 people to their death. He's written books about it, Die Wise, A Manifesto for Sanity and Soul, He's appeared in documentaries about it and has a school in Canada called Orphan Wisdom, a teaching house for the skills of deep living. Because, of course, living deeply, living well, is connected, right? When we are willing to die well, we can live well in the meantime between now and that fuzzy ending. I should warn, however, that this is not the usual me versus big academic expert kind of chat where I extract information and advice from my guest no, Stephen tends to flip things. My take is he uses the dialogue, the other person, the host's words, to illustrate the flaw in the question quite often, which is often the answer to the question that someone like myself might be asking. It's, it's tricky and it's, and it's uncomfortable. As he says in relation to death, any attempt to solve death phobia, any how-to questions we might ask are death phobic in themselves. He talks in koan-like prose, which points to the thing we are really wanting to know, which again, yes, it's, it's uncomfortable, which is mostly his point. As he says in the interview, being comfortable is overrated. I'm not going to say too much more uh, before we head into the interview. I won't allude to what we talk about as a way to sell it in. Instead, I think I'll just let you listen and roll around with all the ideas. Music. Uh, Stephen Jenkinson, it's an honour to have you here on Wild. Uh, it's really hard to know where to start a conversation with you because your range um, is broad. You cover off a lot of big stuff. You cover off life in your conversations and in your work. But today I would love to talk to you about death. I, I think of it often as a small child. I was quite obsessed by it, the unknowingness of it but mostly the absurdity of it, the fact that it's the most certain thing in our lives and yet we live in denial. We are outraged and affronted by it when it comes about and we're totally unprepared for something that is absolutely inevitable. Um, If we are smart, we would have turned it into something way more beautiful by now, I would have thought. So I'm just wondering, from 20 years working in what you call the death trade, would you be able to give us a little bit of an overview as to why we, in the West in particular, uh, in 2023, just don't die well?
1: Uh, I think it's because um, there's there's so little clarity about what's at stake, and there's so much there's so many claims made about the the personalizing and the the ghettoizing of the enterprise that um, we've basically forsaken anything you could call uh, collective or traditional um, guidance on the matter, right? So you're in it on your own, and you know that in your bones. You know there's nothing to turn to. You know, let's put it another way. If you and I go to some other kind of place in the world that we wouldn't call the West in any sense of the term, and we sat with uh, a, a seven-year-old and asked them, what happens to you when you die? The chances are they wouldn't draw a blank. If you ask one of our seven-year-olds, <laughs> the chances are good you will. So even at seven, the afflictions are there, and the poverties are deep, and you'd think the sheer dread of the poverty would contribute to some kind of... Um, moral intelligence on the matter, but that's clearly not what happens. That our dread of the poverty deepens the poverty and we stay away in droves. It's a strange formulation, but that's, that's what seems to happen. So inevitably then Mm. you can't, you can't die in the presence of a collective wisdom on the matter. You die on your own. And it's pretty much as I saw in my corner of the world, you die pretty much the way you lived. And you really would wish something else for the people in question. I really did. Mm. But uh, there is such a thing, and it behooves us to make the point early on in our conversation here, there is such a thing amongst adults as too late. You can hope to your heart's content, but there's a certain point at which if you haven't done the work, you're not going to. And that doesn't make me uh, a poster child Mm. for hope.
0: That's got me sitting up straight. Properly so. Yeah, that, that statement, um, too late. I think we do feel that. I think we, we put off something that we know we need to work on sooner. Um, should we want to die well in order to be able to live well? Because ultimately, I think a lot of our fear is about the years in between, between now and the moment when we die. Um, Stephen, I, I've, I've listened to you talk on this quite a bit. And of course, you cover this in your book, Die Well. Um, the notion of submission, um, and I, I've heard you say that trauma always proliferates in nations that have no active culture of submission. I'm wondering if you can actually speak to that in relation to our relationship to death, because I think that's a really important point.
1: Well, I don't know if culturally speaking, we can generalize from my place to yours, but let's let's dream on the possibility that we could at the risk of offending some, and, and offer the following as an observation. Nobody came to my corner of the world to submit to anything or anyone. We, we were the progeny of progress and capacity. So nobody's going to tell us what to do, and that's why we left. And lo and behold, what do we discover? That when we offload tradition, there are certain times in life when the threadbareness of what you end up with Becomes all the more apparent, sadly, even savagely, the more all the more apparent. So I think our colonial history lends tremendously to this uh, this poverty and this sense of nowhere to go and and nothing to pick up, nothing to restore or redeem, nothing to remember. Even all of this is pay hey, as you play. That's what it's become. Yeah. So. I think your colonial history is recognizable in what I'm saying here at least. And of course the indigenous people that your your um ancestors and mine found where they ended up could have been helpful on the matter. In fact we could go further and say could be helpful on the matter even now. Uh, but there's very little recourse to uh those that we set aside you know initially on the at first contact. Very little recourse even now. So long story short, as as sorrowful as the matter is, I don't see any indication that there is a will for course correction that it would include us deciding we haven't got it right after all.
0: Yeah, which I guess brings in that submission, I suppose, from what I'm picking up from what you're saying, is that we... We don't want to submit to submission. We don't want to submit to the actual truth of all of this. Yeah. Anything
1: that is bigger than you is not necessarily your enemy. Anything that doesn't go along with your plans isn't necessarily, doesn't have it out for you. But if if you're a product of a time and a place that is relentlessly depending on self-mastery, and self-confidence, and what I've called in the trade, competence addiction. When you have all these proliferating, and it's worse now than when I wrote Die Wise some, whatever it is, seven or eight years ago, I think it's worse now. So, yeah, we, we're not even willing to submit to the likelihood that our neighbor is capable of a different understanding than we're capable of. And a different understanding doesn't mean they're mistaken and you're not.
0: Um, does this stem, Stephen, from, I mean, it seems like an obvious ism, but our culture of individualism, the me-first mentality that we are enslaved to. We think it's a freedom, but we are very much enslaved to. Is is that the, at the root of this? I don't know
1: that there's a, a specific and singular root. There's a lot of contributing uh, streams That bestow upon us our poverty in the matter. Yeah. But I think if we have a foundation myth about ourselves that includes our understanding that we're, we're the latest greatest thing that freedom was looking for. I mean, when you have that, you don't have much self doubt that you can work with, but you have ferocious self doubt in places that doesn't, that don't submit readily to your self-determination, ferocious self-doubt. So Mm. as an example, when I was working in the death trade, people would ask me all the time, did I find that people who were dying, who had some kind of faith life or some kind of religious affiliation or practice tended to die better? They didn't know how to finish the question, but that's basically what they meant. My answer pretty routinely was no. No, what I found over and over again was people with a, with a a kind of working spiritual hypothesis let's call it discovered to their dismay that their that their faith their convictions their belief systems all of those things were concocted not with the realities of dying in mind not with the dying time in view these things were were assembled as a bulwark against the realities of dying much more often than not
0: mm.
1: so When you come to your dying time, if the contest is between your convictions and dying, who do you suppose is going to prevail so you know what I saw over and over again? Yeah, and your convictions are an early casualty, Mm. sadly.
0: Yeah, so it's part of the same paradigm of fear. Um, And I think, you know, you talk about this quite a lot, that the way we deal with our fear of death, our uh, death phobia, and talk about it preserves the fear. Um, it's, it's so often about conquering or hiding or numbing ourselves. Um, but it really works in that, that framework of fear. And you actually point to euthanasia as an example of this. Um, which is quite interesting because a lot of people feel that that enables a certain amount of agency and it enables us to have freedom around how and when we die. But I'd really love you to explain, um, you know, fairly simple nuances around how euthanasia still tends to work into that paradigm of fear.
1: Well, as as a preamble to doing so, I'd like to quote my countryman, Leonard Cohen, who in one of his songs said, it looks like freedom. But it feels like death. It's something in between, I guess. It's closing time. (laughs) Okay, so my country, Canada, has legalized, they don't call it euthanasia, needless to say. They have a, 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 I don't know what you call it, a, a, a term for it made, medical assistance in dying, I think, to remove it, to distance it from the bad old days when it was illegal. Yeah, we call it much the same. Okay. And so the, the, those who were in favor of it, obviously and understandably viewed dying as a insurmountable suffering in and of itself. Now, this was never actually said overtly, but covertly, you could hear it all the time. I, I'm going to translate it for you. People shouldn't have to die. Now, on the surface of it, that has a certain appeal, mm. that phrase. It also is absolutely nonsensical. That's like saying you have a, you have the right not to suffer. This is just the most peculiar claim. And to call this a right is, is, you know, it's beyond the pale really. Mm. So if, if you come into the arrangement with the conviction that dying in and of itself is a, is a indignity bordering on the unspeakable and a terrible transgression upon your self determination. Then you will welcome anything that reasserts your self-determination. But it doesn't, but it doesn't do anything about your fear of dying. It doesn't even touch it. And as a result of not touching it and pretending to fix it, lo and behold, don't you discover that the fundamental death phobia of the culture when the culture legalizes euthanasia or of its equivalent is intact after the legalization? that fear remains because it was never spoken to.
0: If not increases.
1: Yes. And, and the, the terrible dilemma, mm. among others, is the notion that if you just gain agency, you win. <laughs> no, no, that's, it's simply not the case. I can promise you this. Dying is a deity, okay? It is that powerful. It is that consequential. It is not in any way malignant. It doesn't mean you any harm. But it has your address. It's not going anywhere else. You can't buy it off. It's more faithful as a companion than any friend you will ever have. So, how do you propose to engage the companionship? That's the question. And fearfully, wouldn't, you wouldn't call that companionship. How do we relax
0: into that truth?
1: Well, how would you exercise something that's not dominion? How to come to your dying as, as if, if it's not a
0: question of who wins? So dying well and dying or dying wisely, you've said, is, is a responsibility. It's a right and it's a responsibility in part to our ancestors and our heirs. But um, at the risk of obviously asking the question from within the paradigm of a fear, based um, approach to death. I'm wondering if you could give us a little bit of a picture of what dying well could look like, how we can actually relax into or submit to um, this deity. I know people listening are going to be wanting to know and wanting to see if they can actually do it before it's too late, if they can start living it, living out this notion of dying well so that they can probably also live well in the meantime. Mm. Is there anything that you can proffer there?
1: The first order of business turns out to be the last as well, and it would be this. Learn the poverty mm-hmm. that you don't intend but you bring with you nonetheless. If you don't do that, then all the positivity mantras in the world will not serve you, nor will they serve the dying when the time comes, right? So learn the poverties first. Now that doesn't sound, okay, so I'll do that for 20 minutes and then the rest of the time.
0: What do you mean by learn the poverties?
1: Learn the poverties means attend to what we've just been talking about for the last 20 minutes or so. There's not much that serves you when the dying time, when the dying time of someone else comes close to you. You can already feel it then you can feel the threadbareness no okay so you don't you don't prevail over threadbareness you learn to weave you see this is what i'm advocating here <laughs> is that if you imagine dying to be an uninvited guest in your house then you would be more inclined to see it this way the presence of dying draws down upon your fundamental sense of etiquette with a stranger. And isn't it true that more often than not, the presence of a stranger draws something up in us that the presence of friends doesn't do? Because we can't speak shorthand with a stranger, emotional or psychological or or mythic or poetic shorthand. So we're obliged to speak long-handedly instead. And that's what I mean by learning, learning the ways, you see. And in so doing, you will find yourself...
0: Learning the poverties.
1: Yes, more capable of making a place for death at the table. The next order of business will be to inquire after what might Mm. be the, the typical diet of dying. In other words, what sustains the dying in the way that you're sustained. And this is where the companionship comes in. And the fear of being set upon begins to to, um, diminish someone.
0: What do you mean about inquiring about the diet? What do you mean by diet? Could you spell that out a little?
1: I would say to you that dying is a living thing. It might sound extremely odd, that phrase. But if you give it a minute, you would realize that dying is so consequential when it appears. I'm not talking here about the moment of death. I'm talking about the, the duration of demise. There's so much consequence to it that we don't get a lot of vote on, that it's it's very clear to me, at least, that it, it it is a kind of life force. Let's put it another way. If you go out your the back of your house or your building where you live, the first place you can find where the dirt appears, take a pinch of it, put it in your hand and walk around the neighborhood and ask people what it is. And depending on whether you have a kind of new agey neighborhood or a, <coughs> excuse me, uh, then people might see images or or symbols in your hand. But that's not what it is. Do you know the way you come by this is things have to die in order for there to be dirt? That's what it is. It's the evidence of death. And it turns out that the it's the evidence of death that's the life-giving thing. Life is not a life-giving thing. Life consumes life as it goes. Death releases all that consumption, not symbolically, in every way that it can be meant. It releases all of that accumulation, all of that concentration, and redistributes it in the world, in this case, in the form of dirt that you can plant in. Well, if it's true at the level of plants, if it's true at the level of everything that sustains us, by way of eating, could it not be true poetically and mythologically as well? Exactly the same story, with no particular change of emphasis. And if it's true, then what does it ask of us? And that's the beginning of tr- of contending with the fearfulness. I think.
0: So, if I'm hearing you well, I I, I take it from those two orders that you've you've outlined. Um, it's really about familiarizing ourselves with our dialogue around it and perhaps even also introducing ourselves to new wisdoms wisdoms that are, are truer and 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 fit with the flow of our knowing it's it's listening you know and and I call it soul nerding when I'm coming when, when I'm talking about getting comfortable with for instance anxiety getting comfortable with um, the climate crisis is is to soul nerd on people who have explored these difficulties, these troubled times in other times before, and who have wisdoms to share. And at the very least, we feel less lonely, but we can also expand our understanding and um, learn of our poverties and inquire about the diet um, that feeds us. Have I got that roughly right, if I was to put it into some slightly different words?
1: This is a good characterization, though it's not mine. So here's, here's where we would depart from what you said in the direction of what I'm suggesting. It would be this. You initiated the observation by suggesting getting comfortable w- with these various dilemmas would be a good thing. I'd like to recommend that being comfortable is way overrated. In fact, is not required. In fact, may require certain things <laughs> yes. that, that produce a kind of duplicity in us. Here's what I mean. So a woman was in touch with me very briefly on uh, as uh, by way of a letter. This is what she said. She's in her 50s. She's taking care of her dying father. She's doing so alone. She's read Die Wise. The only dilemma she's finding is that her father won't talk to her about his dying in any way, shape, or form. So her question to me is this. How can I give my father a Die Wise death? Her phrase, I should say, not mine. But how can she do so while at the same time respecting his wishes and his, his example? My answer was you can't. And she was uh, taken aback, needless to say, because she imagined it was possible to do the right thing by way of his dying and do the right thing by way of his his response to her intervention or her presence. In other words, she was never going to be able to come to her father's dying and to ask him to do the same, to meet her there and at the same time show that deference to him that most people would imagine would be the the thing that you should do in such a moment. I would say in in as a distinction from that, that he doesn't have the right as her father who helped bring her into the world, to keep his dying from her. He literally does not have the right to do it. This is not an act of fathering. And here's why. The consequences of his refusal to speak about it Mm. will be with her, her whole life through. He won't have to live the consequences of it. She will. And when her dying time comes, she will remember his silence as much as she remembers anything that I say or or that she reads somewhere else. And so I'm, I come back again to the observation we made earlier on, that dying is so consequential that you're not really in charge of what it means. You're not in charge of the, the, the consequences that ebb out as a consequence of how you do it or how you refuse to do it or how you try to bypass it or medicate it or hallucinogen it. Or whatever it is, you see, so an enormous uh, benefit is to be had from, from the culture that you come from and me, mine, deciding to bear some responsibility for the nature of our dying, having glimpsed the consequences of our dying. And it turns out not to be nearly as burdensome as we're afraid that it is. It turns out to be an enormous range of possibility for literally affirming life. But you can't affirm life if you leave death out of your affirmation. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss.
0: I'm wondering, Stephen, I mean, you've been at the side of over a thousand people as they have died and, you know... I can't help but ask, but how many of those people that you have sat with um, have submitted in those final hours? I think we, we have this idea that, you know, there's this, we, we get this rush of meaning. All of a sudden the meaning of our existence really knocks us over the head in maybe our final weeks, months, whatever it might be, minutes. Right. Um, does this happen? How often does it happen?
1: How often do people get up from the bedside and say, I get it now. I rarely saw it. This is a sad but true observation. I rarely saw it. As I said earlier, people tend to die in the way that they lived. This is not shocking. I know what you said, sure. and I thought, I thought the same, that there surely must be two or three peak experiences of life that would bring out the best in people, that would produce a kind of wisdom that the ordinary grind could never approximate. But it turns out that the ordinary grind is where your wisdom comes from. And if you don't employ a death wisdom as part of your daily grind, don't be surprised when death comes around that you've got nothing to bring to the show
0: except more of the same. I want to extrapolate that out because that's a really good pivot point because I think uh, we operate in a similar way. We think we're going to have some almighty wake-up experience that will get us to um, think better about our consumption, overcome the climate crisis, you know, and I'm constantly asking what's it going to take? Right. And I, I find it very challenging when you plant that notion that it's in the ordinary, that wisdom is likely to come. In some ways it's a relief because it means I don't have to wait for the calamity. I don't have to wait for the final moments where death is presented to me, you know, um, as an end point, kind of a a deadline. Um, I have a responsibility to do it now. I get fired up by that. But I am wondering if you have some thoughts on how this notion, this this Attitude, this approach to death applies to the death of the planet because, or maybe I should say, the death of humanity, because I think so many of us assume if we die, we leave a legacy. And, and it's a big part of why we have children. We want to pass on humanity. And we live with that expectation that this beautiful thing, humanity, will go on and on. And I think we, our generation has suddenly got the memo. It's, it's sort of sitting at the back of our consciousness in many ways because it's so big and so hard to fathom, well, humanity will also die. That's, that's what we're looking at. Um, so I'm wondering if you can apply some of what you've, you've just been talking to us about to, to this kind of death.
1: It's a great question. It's a vast question. Um, well, i would start off with the word humanity. So we, in, in typical English we have the word human as an adjective. We have another word by ending an E to the end of that word. Are these synonyms? Are they just two words for the same thing? I mean, it's very odd to add an E, create a new word, when you've already got a perfectly good word called human. So what do we discover from this little linguistic observation? My answer would be this. It is the realization of humans that their humanity includes the inability to be human from time to time. And so we develop a word that characterizes the times when we're human. We call ourselves humane. So obviously there are implications that there's, there are other times where we're clearly not so. One. So our humanity is not inevitable. It's not an inevitable consequence of looking like you, Or looking like me or sounding like us or any of that stuff. We have to work on our humanity for it to appear. Second thing, I think it's abundantly clear beyond a matter of opinion that the world doesn't need one more human being. On the other hand, I think it's safe to say that the world needs the humanity of all the people that are here, needs us to lead with our humanity which is to say our life-loving our life loving part first, not our life-fearing part first, yeah? Three, there's an immense amount of sorrow that goes with the territory now. It's behind the question that you've asked. It's grief we're talking about now. That's something that's more primordial than fear, but less adamant, more primordial, less adamant. That's what grief is. So I tell you a brief story. I'm told, I have friends in, in Iceland. I was there teaching a few times and they told me some local uh, municipality had done the following thing. There was a, a hastily retreating glacier. So they put a sign at the foot of the glacier. And the sign apparently said three things on it. It said, we know what's happening. We know what must be done. Only you will know if we did it. It's very stilling, no? Mm. And, and if you give it a moment, mm. you will find that your, your assumption is that the sign is addressed to the future maybe the children or the you know the un, the not yet born kids or something like this i beg to differ i think the sign was addressed to the glacier because these people are old order animists you know they're pagans many of them with a lutheran lutheran kind of gloss and that stuff is still there and i wouldn't be the least bit surprised that they're they are if you will submitting themselves to the retreat of the glacier as the bountiful evidence of what has come to be, where it stills all the rancorous matters of opinion and whether you believe in the science and all the rest. And it says three things. We know, we know, but we don't know if we will. And so far, the evidence is not good that we will. We don't have a good track record. Okay, so if we go back to what we were talking about earlier, and you're asking me what are the practicalities of, you know, a good submission to the, to the event of dying, and we apply it to what we're talking about now, the same thing holds, you see. Until you begin with the poverties, you will not begin. You will be in a process of infinite remove or regression or withdrawal, because it's just too hard, and it's just too vast and it asks too much and i'm just one little person and there's nothing i can do and it's too late look there's no doubt in my mind that it's too late for an awful lot of things but here's the thing the time will come when there will be people who are not alive now and all the people who are alive now will be dead it's not that long from now but that time is coming and those people have got to decide Whether or not they're willing to claim us as their ancestors, given our track record, given the, the deep diminishment of the natural world. If we have no other, if we can find no other reason to behave differently than that, that reason will do. Those people will need to know that they come from people who are worthy of coming from. And you don't hope that you'll be worthy. You get worthy. Now, and that's what time it is.
0: What does it look like for you when you are in elderhood, when you are practising elderhood and honouring it? What do you feel that you, what do you rise to? Well, first of all, I don't
1: think it's the responsibility of anybody to dictate what the program of elderhood at its concrete lived level should look like. That's the responsibility. That translation is the responsibility of people who are coming to that time in their lives. Yeah? It's very challenging for anybody at my age Mm -hmm. to look to people half or a quarter or a third my age and say, well, just do what I do. Just follow me around for a while and you'll get it. I mean, (laughs) I
0: think... I think that's ludicrous. In some ways, I think it wouldn't be a bad start. I, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, but I mean, in the absence of any other kind of sturdy
1: leadership, yes. But how did things get get the way they've got? If it wasn't on the watch of people who are now saying to you, "Yeah, follow me around for a while, you'll get it." See, my point is that this is much more stymieing than we wish it was. Okay. The problem is at the level of the the climate crisis problem. We have an elder crisis problem that's of similar proportion and similar complexity. So it's the work of translating that people have to undertake ongoingly, ordinarily, in an everyday sort of way, not by observing themselves as if from a distance, wondering how their elderhood is working out today. But instead, being willing to undertake a kind of work that's faithful to the troubles of the times, that takes dictation from the troubles of the times, that doesn't blink too often, and leave it to other people to decide whether that constitutes a legitimate and bona fide elderhood in their midst. This is not for the people Mm. we're talking about to decide this. Now, the problem with that arrangement, of course, is a lot of younger people have never, literally never seen an elder in action. So how would they know? And I'm saying this is the risk that older people have to take, that they would not be recognized in their elderhood by younger people. It's distinctly possible. So maybe an elder function now is Mm -hmm. to proceed minus any recognition, minus the payday.
0: I could talk this for a very, very long time Um, and I can see that a lot of the themes interrelate, the questions that I've asked about elderhood I think relate to our relationship with death um, and to where we're at with the climate crisis and so on and so forth. it's It's hard to follow um, a lot of what you say, but I think we can feel into it and I invite everybody who's listening to feel comfortable with that or maybe to feel uncomfortable about it and be okay with it. Um, given everything, the all of it, I'm sort of tempted to ask, you know, Stephen Jenkinson, are we going to be okay? Will we make it? Is it too late? Will we find it? Will we submit in time? But I might ask instead, What is the invitation here right now for all of us?
1: I mean, it's proper for me to say, I I, I don't, I don't know. You know, I, I have a kind of propensity for the prophetic, but I'm not sure I have the skill that should go along with it. And I'm not persuaded. I mean, we're not okay. So, in the foreseeable future, no, we're not going to be okay. Um, If you can, okay, better. So, Samuel Beckett wrote a remarkable book that's impenetrable and I can't understand it and I don't want to read it, but the title is amazing. The title is (laughs) I I can't go on. I'll go on. And this is exactly the skill Mm. that it seems to me that we need now. Think about it. I can't go on is a true rendering of the circumstances. It doesn't doesn't preclude what you will do, but it says you can't. And then there's a second half to it which you have to attend to in order not to be unnecessarily nihilistic about the whole thing. And it's this, I can't go on, I'll go on. So if I were to translate this prosaically, I'd say Samuel Beckett, the strange elder, was anticipating this kind of time and offering the following observation. Friends, he said, there will come times in your life when you will go on not being able to. I think culturally, we're very likely in one of those times now. And that's the skill that we need. And in my small way, I'm contributing consciously and deliberately to that understanding that these are both skills. Not being able to go on and knowing it is a skill. (coughs) And going on anyway is a different kind of skill and they don't cancel each other out, they're both there. That's what grief is. Well,
0: that's certainly an invitation. It's an invitation. Yeah. Yeah. And it's all that yes and it's not yes but or yes I can't. Um, Stephen, I think that's probably a really lovely note to finish on. Um, Thank you so much for the stillness, the wisdom, the challenge. The, uh, the the picking me up on my language and my fear based language. It's um, it's fun and it very much is part of learning the poverty's. And so thank you very much for for introducing me to that notion. Um, it's it's helpful. It's um, it's comforting.
1: Very good. Well, you're very kind to invite me and very kind to work hard at these questions and to the time that we've had together. And I, I really appreciate it. Too.
0: As I said in the introduction to this conversation, I didn't want to spell out the learnings too much. I think a conversation like the one that I just had with Stephen needs to be followed by a certain amount of stillness. Sadness sometimes just has to be sat with. However, having said that, I, I will flag three things because I can't help myself. And it's also what I promise to do at the end of each of these conversations on Wild. The first is, and I guess I just want to repeat a line from Stephen that I quote back at him. You might recall it. Trauma always proliferates in nations that have no active culture of submission. Stephen sees our inability to die wise and to die well as a trauma. And submission is the the key thing here that I got from the conversation. The second thing I want to just, I guess, draw out I really am going to think through his words on elderhood and I think I'll have to listen back to the conversation a few times in this regard. It's an invite, to be honest, that excites me at this stage in my life as I'm I'm looking for, I guess, meaning in this second stage of my existence. The third thing is this idea of ordinary. I like it when anyone suggests starting at ordinary. We, we don't have to and shouldn't wait for the big dramatic thing Before we get real and alive and step up and be wise and live our real lives, we don't wait until death is nose-to-nose with us um, to really live or to submit. We can't rely on the jolt of something massive like all the icebergs melting or all the lights going off at some point before we should step up into full-throttle climate action. As he says in that chat, ordinary ground is where wisdom comes from. If we think it's more than that, we are too late. Okay, so please do share this episode with people around you, the big minds, the big hearts, you know, the big feelers. Talk about it with them. Um, you don't have to understand it all. It's it's important just to feel into conversations like this, to sit with the sadness. Okay, I will chat to you all next episode.